I still have very vivid memories of being a kid and watching my favorite shows, particularly on a Thursday or Friday evening. And in the middle of the show, there would be a commercial broken from the local news channel, and it would normally start something like this. Is a chemical in your child's lunchbox causing their insides to melt into a gelatinous goo? Find out tonight after the programming on your 11 o'clock news. And I remember thinking, hold on, I love step-by-step as much as the next guy, but if something in my lunchbox is causing my insides to melt into gelatinous goo, I would like to find out now. Perhaps we don't need to wait till 11 to find out such incredibly important information. And so sometimes it would worry me enough to where I would wait. I'd wait through all of my programs. I'd wait through all the TV shows. I'd wait for the news to start. And then at 11 o'clock, I would think, okay, now I'm going to find out. Now I'm going to find out if something is harming me because the news people, the trusted news people are going to tell me what I need to know. And then 11 o'clock, they would start with a couple local news stories. And then they would talk about the weather. And then they would talk about sports from that evening. And I would think, come on, get to the whole melting my insides thing. And then finally that story would come up. And, of course, it was nothing. And I would remember, I think, even as a child, I thought, why would you make me worry so much about something that you knew wasn't that big of a deal? But those old school news tactics of teasing you and leading you into something to make sure that you tuned into the program, keeping you worried so that you would tune in, is a really small picture of a way the world really works. Our world seems to be focused on causing us to worry, sometimes on a small scale about the little things that we should be hyper-focused on. Sometimes it's about big things like the end of the world. In the past 20 years, I can't count the amount of times that the world was supposed to end, whether it was Y2K or 2012 or harvest moons or blood moons or eclipses or anything in between. There have been multiple times, even this year, that I've had students in my classroom say, did you know that the world is ending next week? And we're deeply disturbed by it. And so our world is focused on causing us to worry. And the reason for that is that kingdoms that are driven by consumption are financed by worry. In a world where everything is about consuming as much as you can and being as safe as you possibly can, the way to keep that machine going is to cause people to worry so that we keep feeding the beast. But last week we talked about chasing inferior kingdoms. As we look at the kingdoms of the world, the things that we value in the world compared to the kingdom of of Christ. And we looked at how inferior kingdoms can't exist in the same plane with the kingdom of God. And so it's our responsibility when we trust in Christ to let go of those things. But letting go of those things causes us to worry. Because these kingdoms that we build, these places that we find our safety and our security and our satisfaction, we put them there for a reason. Because we want to feel secure. We want to feel validated. We want to feel like our life has meaning. And so we put all of these things in those places and to let those things go is completely horrifying. But we know that Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God requires us to let go of all other kingdoms, to trust in Christ and trust in him alone. But we also remember that we have a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. And God knows that this is something incredibly difficult for us to do And so that's why Jesus follows that very difficult commandment with one of the most freeing passages in all of Scripture, telling us that if we're in Christ, we don't have to worry about this life. 
And then when God calls us to let go of something that we hold so dear that he is keeping us in his hands as we let go, and so we can believe the truth that if we belong to the kingdom of God, that if we've trusted in Christ for salvation, then the kingdom is ours. The true everlasting kingdom of God is ours, and so we have no reason to worry about our lives or the things that are in them. And so we're going to look at this passage from Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. And we're going to see Jesus give us peace and call us not to worry because the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom has the power to put anxious hearts to rest. And so from Luke 12, verse 22, and he said it to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, there's so much to be thankful for in this passage of scripture today. We thank you for your word that gives us life, that gives us sustenance, that teaches us what it means to be your children. And God, we thank you for the hope and the confidence that comes in knowing Jesus, our King. And so God, you know each of our hearts today better than we know them ourselves. And we just ask that you look deep in our hearts, that you reveal to us the places that we're holding on to tightly, the things that we trust in more than we trust in you And help us to remember, as our hearts are anxious and worried, that you're in control and that you have never let us down and you've never failed us. You will never leave us and you'll never forsake us. And help us to trust in that truth and to cling on to that truth in every moment and in every season of our lives. And Father God, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The question, what is life, is one that we all wrestle with in one way, shape, form, or fashion. 
throughout history, philosophers and leaders and rulers have asked this question. Every man, woman, and child at some point, whether we think about it directly or indirectly, all of us have to answer the question for ourselves, what does it mean to be alive? What is life? What gives life valuable value? And the reality is that answer to that question can change from person to person. Because we all have different ideas about what makes us tick, about the things that are most important to us. But even inside the same person, that question can have a different answer through many different seasons of life. So maybe at one point in your life, getting a certain education was the most valuable thing in your life. And if you could just accomplish this thing, if I could just get out of high school, into the college I want to go to, or or into the occupation that I want to go into, then my life will have meaning, my life will have value, and I'll know what it's like to be alive. Maybe it's a certain amount of influence or power or fame. Maybe it's a certain job that you've been reaching for, a promotion you've been reaching for your entire life. Maybe it's a certain amount of numbers in your bank account, but we can fill in that blank to what gives life value or what gives life meaning with a lot of different things. And for each and every one of us, that answer has probably changed over time. But how we define life, how we decide what gives our life meaning drastically impacts the way that we live and the things that we value. In verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Right there, Jesus tells his disciples to not worry about or to not be anxious about two seemingly important things. And so maybe life isn't all about food or what we're going to wear, but we know that if you were going to make a list of things that are incredibly important, food would be on that list. Having clothes, having shelter, those are the the foundations of life. Those are the things that we think we need these so that we can do everything else we want to accomplish. And now Jesus is saying, don't worry about those things. In fact, he continues on in verse 23 to say that life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. But how could Jesus say something like that? How could Jesus be almost dismissive about these things that we consider foundational to having a healthy and productive life? These are the basic things we need. But he models this in his own life. Remember in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus goes out into the wilderness after he's baptized. And he's out in this desolate place where no one wants to go, completely alone. And he's fasting and he's praying and he's tempted as he's there by the devil. And remember, the first temptation that's given to Jesus is a temptation to lose trust because he's hungry and he's physically weak. And so the first temptation that Jesus encounters from the devil is he looks at him and he says, you're really hungry, man. Just take this stone and turn it into bread. You have the power to do that. You know that you have the capabilities to do that, and so you don't have to be hungry anymore. Just take the stone and turn it into bread because you need this bread. But Jesus, of course, looks at him and he responds by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus says, yes, this is important. We know that Jesus valued food, that Jesus valued bread, and we see him eat and share meals with his disciples and with sinners and tax collectors. And so we know that Jesus valued these things, but when it comes to his trust in God, 
When it comes to his pursuit of ministry, when it comes to putting that in conflict with the word of God, Jesus says, I'll take the word of God over even this bread. And I wonder how many of us count the word of God more valuable than clothing, more necessary than food. And I know for me, I would really hate to put that on a chart. I would hate to see how often that meter switches. And I would imagine more often than not, I take these things that I see as necessities and I view them as more important to me than the word of the living God who created the heavens and the earth and has given them to me free of charge. But Jesus is taking us here and saying, that is not the way to look at life. He looks at me and says, Chris, you're seeing this all wrong because you're more than just food. You're more than what you wear. You're more than these things that are, you think are so necessary. You are created to be my child. And as he teaches on the kingdom, Jesus forces us to realize a really difficult truth. He says that the things that we at, once time, at one time considered ultimate these things are actually just a very small part of our lives. The kingdom forces us to look at the things that we've seen as so important and so dear and to say, yes, these are good. No, these aren't ultimate. But then he continues. He says, these are such small things, and so why are you worrying about these little bitty things? Why are you so concerned about worrying about these things that aren't going to help you? They're not going to save you. They may give you temporary satisfaction, but that will fleet after just a moment. But then he even gets down to what worrying is all about. He says that not only are our worries very small compared to eternity, but then he tells us that worrying actually does nothing at all. In verse 25, he says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? So not only are the things that you're worried about not ultimately that big of a deal in the grand scheme of eternity, but even if they were, you worrying about them doesn't accomplish anything at all. He says, try it. Try to worry about your life and see if you can even just add an hour. See if you can even just get an extra 60 minutes to tack on to the end of your life by worrying. You can't do it. And worrying is really a form of superstition. And it looks a lot like sports. Because sports come with all these weird superstitions where you have athletes that won't wash their clothes, which has been part of my life before, but not because I feel like it's lucky, but because I hate washing clothes. And as long as it doesn't stink, I'm sure it's fine. But if an athlete has a good game, they think, you know what? It must be these clothes. It must be these shoes. There have been basketball players that in the middle of a game are playing, not having a good game, go back to the locker room and say, it must be the shoes. I need new shoes. I need new shoes now. And they put new shoes on. They go out. They have a good game. And so those are now the lucky shoes. Michael Jordan supposedly wore his UNC shorts, which is gross because UNC is gross and Duke is fantastic, but he wore them under his, his game shorts his entire pro career, which is weird and gross, but also kind of impressive because he was still in college shape his entire pro career, which is, I'm sure, a pretty good thing. But it was this idea that if I just do the same thing over and over again, Athletes saying, if I just have the same meal, because this is the meal that I had before a really good game, and so if I eat this meal the same way, then my game is going to be good. And that trickles down into fans. And this happens to me all the time. I try to make sure. I know in my head it doesn't work. But when my team goes on a run, I think, ah, I can't move. 
can't move, I can't breathe, I can't get up, I can't go to the bathroom. I was sitting in this place when the run happens, and so this must be the special place. And by sitting in this exact place, I am giving the players the energy that they need to tackle the opposition. And we do all kinds of weird things because in the back of our minds, we think that something that we do thousands of miles away from the action might have some kind of mystical effect on the game that's taking place. And of course, when we look at it from a distance, we think it's silly and we think it's funny and we think it's weird. But it's no different than worrying. Because we feel like if I sit around and I think about this thing and I obsess over this thing and I hope on this thing, that maybe somehow my inner turmoil is going to make this situation better. But Jesus says it doesn't matter how much we worry. Worrying cannot change our circumstances. Not that worrying does not change our circumstances. Worrying cannot change our circumstances. Worrying and anxiousness, it is completely incapable. It doesn't have what it takes to be able to make any kind of real impact on our lives. In fact, it often does the opposite. It takes those situations and can make them worse or makes us unable or incapable of going out and doing anything to serve God or serve others. And so in verse 26... Jesus says, if then you're not able to do such a small thing as that, is adding one hour to your life, why are you anxious about the rest? If worrying can't accomplish something so small as to add 60 minutes to your life, then how can we expect it to make any sort of substantial difference? Jesus teaches us here that worrying is a waste. That at its core, worrying is an empty endeavor that cripples us and keeps us anxious about the things of life while keeping us from being able to really live. Jesus is teaching us here not to waste our lives worrying because it doesn't work. It can't accomplish anything but to let those things go and to trust them in the hands of a good God and to be free. And in fact, our responsibility and our calling is to replace that worrying in our life with worship. To replace the times when we feel incapable of doing anything because our circumstances feel overwhelming and put them to work going out and loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Turning our worry into action and replacing that with worshiping the one true God, saying, this is too much for me to bear, but it's in your hands, God, so I'm going to continue going out and doing the work that you've called me to do. Echoing the words of Jesus, saying, this may be hard, but I'm not here to live by bread alone. I'm not here to live by these things that I once considered the most important things in my life. I'm here to honor you and to worship you and to follow you and to live for you. And so, God, I'm going to do that and allow you to handle the rest. But that's easy to say and much harder to do. But Jesus knows that. Because he knows our weaknesses. He's familiar with our suffering. And so he gives us a reminder in verses 27 and 28, and even before that in verse 24. He says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, 
oh, you of little faith. Jesus says, I know you're worried. I know you're anxious. I know these circumstances seem overwhelming and life can be difficult and hard and worrying is easy, but remember the God that you serve. You have a God who not only created the heavens and the earth, He not only spoke it into existence and keeps it moving, but he loves it down to every minute particle. He says, remember the ravens, the birds that have very little value to you. God sees them and he knows them and he loves them and he cares for them. They don't have anywhere to store all this stuff. God provides for them and you might never even know they exist, but God knows them and remembers them and loves them and cares for them. Think about the flowers in the field that rise up in a season and die. They're more beautiful than King Solomon in all of his splendor. But they're just grass. And they're here one day and they're gone the next. And if God loves the birds of the air and the flowers of the field with that kind of intensity, with that kind of intimacy, with that kind of depth, how much more does he love you? That he calls you his children. You were made in his image. You were made to look like him. You're made to reflect his glory. If he loves all these things that much, how have you forgotten, oh, you of little faith, that that is how much God loves you? And if God loves you that much, how much could you possibly worry about anything at all? You see, Jesus now moves from saying that worrying is a waste of time to now telling us that it's deeper than just wasting our lives. He reminds us that worrying is a lack of trust in God. Worrying is a denial of God's abilities, and even worse, worrying is forgetting and denying how much God loves us. But God loves the grass, the stinking grass that has me just wrecked in allergies right now and have a weird thing in the back of my throat and it's driving me crazy because of grass and we cut it and we let it fall away and it just provides nutrients for other grass or it's thrown into the fire and burned and it's gone and it's forgotten. It's not personal. It has no identity on its own and yet God loves the grass enough to clothe it with flowers and if that's how much God loves grass, If that's how much God cares for something that is so finite and temporary, imagine how much more he loves and cares for and works for you who are designed to be his children forever. You see, all too often the cure for worry is simply immersing ourselves in the love of God. But if you're anything like me, you find yourself too busy, too lazy, or too fearful to do those things. When things are going well, I'm so busy, and it can be easy to forget and to pay attention to God's word and how much God loves me. Sometimes I don't feel like putting in the extra effort to read God's word or spend time in prayer and to be reminded of God's love. Sometimes I'm afraid that if I dig through scripture, maybe I'll find out that God isn't as loving as I hope that he is. But when we dig into God's word, we find a God who is far more loving than we could ever imagine. 
a God whose love is unconditional and unfathomable, a God who loves us from the inside out, even though we are sinners who fell, even though we're rebels who fall away from him time and time again, God loves us from the inside out. And the more we immerse ourselves in scripture, the more we realize that that is true, that God lavishes his love on us and he'll never run out and it will never run dry. And so if you're worried about your life, we have to ask ourselves, how's my scripture reading? How much time am I spending in prayer? Am I reminding myself of the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life? And if I have that eternal life in Christ, what do I have to be afraid of here and now? Am I spending time in church with my brothers and sisters in Christ who encourage me and lift me up and remind me of the love of God in a personal and intimate way? Am I showing that love of God to others? Because we have a God who loves us and provides for our needs. In the book of Kings, the prophet Elijah that we talked about last week made a proclamation that God wasn't going to allow rain to come into the area anymore because of the sinfulness of the king and the sinfulness of the people. And that probably does not make you a very popular prophet. And so Elijah offers this proclamation and God says, go and hide out a little while. Let some of this settle down. You go and hide and I'll take care of you. And the Bible says that God would send ravens to Elijah to provide food and drink for him. And in this story, we have a picture of a God who loved Elijah so much that he was willing to move nature on his behalf. And this is the kind of God that we can trust. We need to remember that God is both powerful enough to meet our needs and loving enough to be trusted wholly and completely. And so in our times of worry, we don't need to wait on God to prove who he is. God has proved who he is time and time again in our own lives, but also throughout generations. God has left his mark on history saying, I am a God who not only loves my people, but who cares for them and acts on their good and acts on their behalf so that they can have what they need to honor and glorify me. And even if this life costs you yours, I have given you something even better on the other side. But this preaching to ourselves, this reminders, reminding of God's word can't start when the worry is deep. Because for a lot of us, this kind of dive into scripture might be reactionary. Life gets hard. Life gets overwhelming. We start to worry. We start to doubt. We start to be confused. And so we think, I'm just going to read scripture and hope that I get some kind of message out of it that can calm me down and settle me down. But at that point, we're so worked up that it's hard to hear what God is teaching us. And so we have to be people who are preparing for the hard times. We have to find ourselves like Joseph in the Old Testament. When God gave him this vision that said there were going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, Joseph stored up the goods so that when the time of famine came, there would be plenty to sustain his people. And in the same way, we need to be taking in God's word on a daily basis. When life is good, When life is not overwhelming, when we don't find ourselves worried, those are the times in particular where we need to be reading God's word, to be reminded of God's love, to be reminded how God cares for us, and to be storing those treasures up in the times when things are going well, so when things start to fall apart, we can remember what God has taught us. 
We can remember who God is, that that foundation will be there so we're not having to dig for it and to find it, but we will know in our hearts that we serve a God who provides in the good times and in the bad. And because of that, we have no reason to worry. So remember, God loves the ravens and the flowers and the grass, and he cares for them and he keeps them and he provides for them. And if he loves them that much, know that he loves you more. And in your time of weakness, in your time of need, God will provide as he sees fit in a way that allows you to continue pursuing him. And that as we're about to see, he has an even greater reward stored up for you in heaven that he is guarding in Christ and saving it just for you. And so because of that, because of your good father that loves you, know you have nothing to fear and no reason to worry. And he continues that message in verse 29 saying, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For these things, for all the nations of the world, seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And again, Jesus calls us to act in a way that goes completely and totally against every instinct we have. He says, don't seek after the things that you're going to eat and the things that you're going to drink. And that seems to be number one on our minds most days. I need to eat. I need to have something to drink so that I can do everything that I need to do. But clearly Jesus isn't calling us here to starve or to hope that some kind of raven is going to come by and feed us. But what Jesus is talking about here is more about our goals, more about the things that are at the end of our road the things that drive us and the things that compel us to act. And Jesus says, don't spend your life seeking after what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or these things that you feel are necessities. Your mission, your focus should be to seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness that comes with that. And that should be your main focus. That should be your ultimate goal. And as you chase after that, as you seek after that, God will add all the things to you that you need. And I wonder if we are bold enough to rank our pursuits, the things that we value and the things that we think are important, where the kingdom of God would fall, where a close relationship with Christ and the righteousness that comes from Jesus would land on that list. But again, it comes down to satisfaction. And so whatever is at the end of our road, we have to realize those things may even be good, but they don't have inside of them themselves anything that can ultimately give us satisfaction or peace. Even good things. Again, if education, if an education is at the end of your road, if that's your main driving goal and that's the most important thing to you, it may be good, but when you reach it, when you find it, you'll realize that education alone can't give you everything that you need. If it's a certain job or occupation, when you find yourself in that place, you'll realize that it may be good and it may fulfill part of your life, but it is inadequate and incapable of filling you completely. The same thing with a relationship and a marriage. And we know that marriage is beautiful, and we got to celebrate with Bryce and Olivia as they got married yesterday, and we get to see the beauty of the covenant that God puts together. And it's a wonderful thing, but even marriage itself can't fulfill you. That person is not your other half that completes you from the inside out. Marriage can't satisfy. Money can't satisfy. Fame can't satisfy. Whatever we put at the end of the road is incapable in and of itself of giving us the satisfaction we look for. 
But Jesus says if you seek first the kingdom of God, not only will you find satisfaction in the kingdom, but then you will learn how to be satisfied with all the other things that God has given you. You'll learn how to have a healthy and satisfying marriage. You'll learn how to take your education and use it for the glory of God. Whatever's in your bank account for the glory of God, whether it be much or little, to take your job, to take whatever things God has given you and say, these are good gifts from God, but they are not the ultimate definition of who I am. And so these are not the end in and of themselves, but they are means to an end to glorify God, to use for the good of others, and to find joy in the God who provides them. Jesus also teaches in this passage that once we have our priorities set in the right way, that we see the kingdom as ultimate and all the other things as just good gifts from God as he chooses to give them, he then tells us how to put all of that to use. And in verse 32, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it seems so odd to begin that passage with fear not, because Jesus is asking us to live risky, sacrificial lives. But when we find our priorities in the right order, when we recognize the folly of our worrying, and when we trust in the heart and the love and the grace and mercy of God, then this commandment becomes possible. And Jesus says, out of all these things, that's where you can learn as God's little flock, as God's sheep that he cares for and loves, that you can fear not in the face of all of this adversity. And you can live the way that I've called you to live. And in verse 33 and 34, that's exactly what he tells us to do. He says, take care of people in need. Use what you have for the good of others and for the glory of God. And in their place, in place of the temporary and passing things, then you can find something eternal. He says, store up for yourself money bags that won't rot, money bags that won't grow old, treasures in the heavenly places that no one can take away from you or that will never turn to dust. And we have this promise all throughout Scripture, especially in 1 Peter, that that inheritance, that that reward that God has for us, that he protects it. And there is a reward waiting for us as his children in heaven that one day it says that it will be his good pleasure to give it to us. And so because of that, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you wear the name of a Christian, we should be the most generous, sacrificial, and hopeful people that anyone knows. Because we have a God who not only provides for our needs, but one day he'll rejoice in giving us our ultimate reward. And so that'll enable us to let these kingdoms that we hold so tightly in our hand to loosen our grip and realize that we are simply stewards of the good gifts that God has given us. That he trusts us with them for a season and sometimes he may ask us to give them up for his glory or for the good of someone else. And when he does, when he does ask us that, we can believe the truth of scripture that God gives and takes away. But blessed is the name of the Lord because he loves us and he cares for us and he will always provide for us in the way that we need, in the time that we need. And even beyond that, he has a reward for us that is far greater than anything that we could lose here and now for the sake of the gospel. 
And so don't be afraid. Don't worry. As God's children, as God's little flock, because you have a good father who loves you intimately and completely. And if you are in Christ, he has a hope for you. He has a reward for you. And one day he's not simply going to give it to you, but he is going to be excited to give it to you. That it is going to be his good and perfect pleasure to say, come into my kingdom. This belongs to you. Everything I've been building is yours. Come in and receive it. And so don't be afraid. Don't worry about your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and allow God to fill in the blanks as they go. And when he does, when he gives you good gifts, be willing to use those by being generous, to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself and to imitate the early church in Acts 2 that were willing to give what they had to care for those who had little. And as we do, let's do it with the hope and the peace that comes in knowing that we have a God who loves us more than flowers and birds, who has a plan for us, not simply here and now, but for all eternity. And so that can give us strength and give us hope and give us peace and quiet our anxious hearts in our times of need.